0: My guest today is Professor Anub Malani, who is a professor at the University of Chicago Law School and a professor at the Pritzker School of Medicine at the University of Chicago. He is also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research in Boston, a senior fellow at the Schaeffer Center at the University of Southern California, and an editor at the Journal of Law and Economics. Professor Malani is the co-founder and faculty director of the International Innovation Corps a social service program that sends teams of U.S. and foreign university graduates to work in on innovative development projects with government of, government officials in India. Welcome, Anoop. Thanks for having me, Gil. Uh, I want to start with your most recent paper, and that is entitled Adaptive Control of COVID-19 Outbreaks in India, local, gradual, and trigger-based exit paths from lockdown uh, in which you describe an adaptive control approach to exit the lockdowns, uh, which has been going on. I think some of these lockdowns have been relaxed, if I understand it correctly. Um, But you have a a slightly different approach to it. Um, And since you published the paper in early May, uh, as you know, we in the u s find ourselves in a position not too different from other developing countries like India, and so this may be uh, a prescription for the u s as well perhaps uh, Could you talk a little bit about this approach and how it compares to existing policies in india
1: sure um uh, before i should begin before I begin, I should mention that that while we apply the strategy to India, and that's mainly because that's where I've been focusing my attention and that's where we have the most data for, uh, at least on my team, um, it is applicable to other places as well. It's a generic idea uh, about how to engage in infection control. So turning to to India or turning to the the details of this policy, um, if you look at the existing policy that India has, Uh, It's taken the following strategy. And this is a little bit of a history lesson. Uh, At first, India did some mild control Uh, which is some travel restrictions. And then it switched to an extremely uh, uh, tough approach, which is the lockdown, which began on March 24th, which was an extreme lockdown. Mm -hmm. You saw uh, retail fall by 60 plus percent. You saw uh, 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 commutes to work fall by 40%. It was one of the most harsh lockdowns as measured uh, by Google mobility reports uh, Mm -hmm. around the world. And, And that was an extreme response. And then that continued. Uh, there was a revision uh, in uh, April 21st or so where there was some relaxation, but it was really mild. It was meant to basically, I think, make it possible for more essential services to flow or to flow more easily.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and then there began this policy of uh, a gradual opening up where the country decided that they were going to classify districts uh, based upon a color scheme. Uh, uh, red, orange, green, Uh, green areas could allow more activities than orange, orange more than red. Mm. Uh, Initially that was done by the center and then it was done by states. Okay. And then now you're getting uh, even more narrow uh, areas. Basically, I I think in the current round, you're mainly seeing restrictions either at the city level or at uh, the containment zone level, which is sub-district, sub-ward. It could be Mm. as small as a, a floor of a building. Mm. So that's the progression that we've seen. Now, when we wrote this paper, India was still in its lockdown. So we wrote this in April uh, and gave uh, presentations to the government in April. And what we said was um, that this is a very tough approach, but it, 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 there's a risk that, that uh, the two extremes that India had practiced, which is almost no control and then very strict control, were, were was overkill from either direction. Yeah. What do I mean by that? Well, it is true that you should not have no restrictions there was clearly an infectious disease going around it had meaningfully high mortality we were still learning about it but it was a risk so we know that that's not the right answer um at some point the population might have taken it seriously but but we weren't 100% sure and then when you did a full lockdown um we didn't know whether or not the lockdown was the right answer that is to say you needed to control you needed to shut down that much activity to control the infection. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, it was also the case that it had extremely large negative economic impacts and perhaps health impacts too, uh, on, uh, especially the poor like daily laborers laborers. Now it was still justified in the sense that, you know, when you first hear about a threat, uh it kind of makes sense to just stop and gather information and then make preparations. So in some sense, I think the lockdown uh, had some prudential value, but once you realized what the threat is and once you did the investigation uh, and once you built up, you should change to something that was a little bit more reasoned and so and what we said was um The reasoned response, based upon information we have, suggests that you don't need as harsh a lockdown. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I can tell you where we got that piece of information. And the second thing we realized is that there was differences in uh, spread depending on where you're talking about in India. Simplistically, rural areas had it less than urban areas. And so it seemed unfair or inappropriate, I should say, uh, uh, from a cost benefit perspective to keep rural areas as strictly locked down as urban areas. Mm -hmm. Uh, or to keep the entire country as locked down as it is, except in the most extreme places, that is to say places where the spread was the most severe. Right. So those are the basic ideas we had. And what we said was, look, we can make this, do this in a more principled manner. And here's the way that we want to do it in a principled manner. Let's estimate a series of different models uh, to understand what's going on in India. So sometimes they're going to be what are called uh, uh, SIR or compartmental models, which many people such as Cambridge and Oxford Uh, and Michigan use. Um, Or uh, you can estimate more non-parametric models such as the Washington model, and there are others as well. And we were working with a group at MIT that was doing something called a synthetic intervention model, uh, where we use the progression of diseases in other countries to see what would happen in India without making any strong assumptions about the dynamics of that spread. But we did a bunch of these models, and these models suggested uh, that, in fact, there were different risks in different places and that you would need less control than you currently had under a lockdown in order to to, to contain the disease. Now, the one thing that's left undefined is what it means to contain the disease. And so here we said, you should probably pick a trigger, a goal, an objective, and then try to meet that objective by gradually and locally adjusting social distancing policy. And that goal could be, for example, some epidemiologists suggest it should be looking at the reproductive rate of the infection and, and keeping that below one. So the reproductive rate is the number of infected people an infected person causes. That is right. to say, how many how many people does an infected person infect? And if that's greater than one, then a disease spreads. If it's less than the one than one, the disease naturally dies out.
0: So this requires a fair amount of active management, right? And a place like India, that is a federal system that shows great variability uh, in terms of, um, I should say, education, uh, people's ability to comply, or even bureaucrats and politicians' ability to understand uh, sophisticated uh, methodologies like this, um, how how do you implement this? in a, the, So you're not suggesting a national approach to it. You, you are suggesting a very much focused uh, regional approaches to it, and each of those regions could have its own uh, trajectory, right, its own policies. Is that what you're suggesting?
1: Yes, but you raise a very important point. It is correct that different regions have different risks um, and they should respond differently. You shouldn't use a uniform policy for rural and urban areas. Yeah. But you raise a very important issue, which is that local uh, officials, whether it's politicians or bureaucrats, may not be in a position to um, process the information or yeah. capacity to act even if they could process the information. And I think that's fair. It, India is a, uh, uh, is a much more populous country. It's a much more heterogeneous country in some ways. Um, and it has less state capacity. Now, the way that we answered that was the following. We said, look, we're not going to tell you specifically which actions to take. Mm-hmm. Instead, um, although we could recommend things, instead, we're going to also give you just a general sense of how dangerous the situation is going to be in the coming week or two in yeah. your area. And it's it's not... Different than the than the repro- approach that the MHA ultimately decided, uh, which is to just give general warnings. Now, the difference between what the MHA did and what we did is twofold. The men- MHA, I mean, the Ministry of Home Affairs. They're the, yeah. the the central government agency that that issued the the red, orange, green um, uh, some weeks after we we circulated uh, the, our our paper. Yeah. Um, the. Two differences. First, is the MHA gave specific policies that went with each color coding, and for us, that's helpful as a guide. But you know, on the ground, you have to account for maybe differences in in your state capacity or knowledge about how the population is going to behave in different parts of the country. Um, Some flexibility is helpful uh, there, Uh, I think. The second critical difference is that the uh, Ministry of Home Affairs didn't was unclear about specifically what metric it was doing using to put people in the three bins the only thing it told us was that if you uh, had too many cases too many deaths in the last two weeks prior to their decision you would be put in the red category but then they didn't clarify how they sorted the rest of the country into orange and green whereas for us it was very easy what we did is we said There could be many potential triggers. We gave examples of three, but let's suppose that we focus on the reproductive rate. We tell you the formula for the reproductive rate and where the data comes from. So you can check and see in your district exactly where you end up. So there's no worry about, you know, uncertainty about what's going to happen. It's also nice because then the local district knows what its targets are, both in terms of cases and deaths. Um, And I think that's a second critical issue. Now, I want to pause there and make an important, point, a caveat, which we deal with uh, in subsequent work and analysis, which is that when you do adaptive control like this and you set it to you know some function of the number of cases and deaths you have, you create incentives mm-hmm. maybe for people to manipulate the data. Yeah. Right? If I say in and, and the MHA, the Ministry of Home Affairs orders also did this. It says, you know, if you had deaths during a certain period or cases during a certain period, then you would not be able to be you'd have to be put in the red category. That gives me as a local Official who wants to open up an incentive to to fudge those data. Now I'm not uh, accusing anybody of fudging the data, but sure. you know it's certainly an incentive that exists. And and on the ground, we hear people are aware of this incentive. Um, yeah.
0: So I want to ask you a quick thing on that. I uh, So you know, uh, this is a bit of a my my own bias. So it might be too late for this pandemic, but um, as we move forward in the future, in situations like this. there are are a few things happening, right? So we are getting data not from just the country, but all around the world. And we are going to find patterns in that data. Um, You know, there are a lot of hypotheses around blood types. Uh, If you had BCG vaccines before, you have some protection, there are underlying disease uh, hypotheses. There's a lot of different data elements that are being picked up all around the world. It seems to me that um, an artificially intelligent agent uh would be in a much better position to assimilate and and get decision guidance and and that also avoids the data manipulation problem um you know i, I don 't know if we, if we're ever going to get there, but it seems like a more optimum way to handle something like this and you know in some sense something shows up in your mobile device from a implementation perspective, from a decision maker's perspective, that basically gives you decision guidance. And if you take it and implement it, that's probably more dominant than, you know, somebody looking at the data and making perhaps ad hoc decisions around it.
1: So I think, I think that's an interesting idea, but I wanna, I wanna suggest two weaknesses in the use of AI or uh, a similar kind of algorithmic learning model Yes. And recommendation model. The first one is an AI uh, is only as good as the data it gets. Sure. It cannot get better data. So if somebody is not counting deaths or cases, um, the AI is not going to be able to solve that problem. Um, and to the extent that, that there are data that could address this, unless there are, you know, in, in, in the blockchain world, we call this uh, oracles out there that gather all the information, the AI can't, can't circumvent that cheating. The second issue that's really important for AI is that an AI cannot make value judgments. You can tell an AI, I want to weight economic activity this much and I want to weight debts that much, but you have to make that decision first. And I think also important Mm -hmm. all of this debate is those value judgments. Adaptive control doesn't the the technique that we set out doesn't answer that question. it's the basis for doing some sort of algorithmic control. I mean, when you say an AI method solves this. Adaptive control is just one particular manifestation of something like that. Uh, um, We can make it more complicated if you want to make it seem more artificially intelligent. Uh, But again, it's going to depend on on a policymaker, uh, which can be elected official or or a bureaucrat, depending, to make a decision about how important it is to, to keep economic activity going or how important it is to to reduce the amount of deaths. There's important distributional questions in there,
0: yes. which no algorithm is going to solve. Yeah, so I wasn't so much focused on the algorithm. I was suggesting that if the policy heuristics can be defined at the highest level, then we can remove the noise from implementation of that policy. And you know, we are seeing that in the U.S. also. There's so many different messages that there, you know, everybody has case of their own opinion. And when you have so much noise in the system, you cannot really implement anything. So ironically, a technology driven, I'm not suggesting it makes any value judgment, but but what I'm suggesting is perhaps there is a set of macro heuristics that people agree on and then let the machine drive those heuristics and not allow individual opinions to, uh, you know, to circumvent it.
1: So I think there's one fundamental problem with this, which is there's a third objective that we're not talking about that makes it so that we can't come to a consensus. So the two objectives that you and I have already talked about is let's control health harms and let's also allow as much as possible some economic activity so people can make income and not be poor. But there's a third one, which is there's a bunch of people that want to be in power to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. And um, that's really important because uh, we can't come to a conclusion without first solving that, first, that, that third problem, which yeah. is who gets to decide on what the right objectives are. Right. Uh, we used to think that it's just democracy, but we know that democracy is, does not fully determine this hmm. in the sense that, you know, for example, uh, take the United States. I, I don't want to uh, step into a, a political minefield, but let me, let me, let me tread around it. Yeah. In the United States, we have somebody that's the president. Uh, that ostensibly won an election. But right now, the, 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 the people are competing on the next election. And so uh, a lot of what goes on in the United States is a politicized discussion between Republicans on the one hand, Democrats on the other hand, who are really kind of playing for whatever happens in November in the elections, right? Yeah. And so it, it would, it's hard to ignore the fact that that maneuvering is affecting the response that we're seeing to the epidemic today.
0: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and and it's very hard to explain otherwise why is that there's so much opposition, you know, say over mask wearing or testing or travel bans, things like that. Ordinarily, you would think, well, we should be able to come to a consensus given the data and adjust based upon the data. And the, and the reason why we can't do that is because of the politics right. and the politics is just about who gets to decide. And, you know, that, that that's something that no model as far as I've seen. Yeah. yeah. Certainly. No economic model and no epidemiological model accounts for, but the person that can address that, or the people that can can kind of think about that and think about a way out, I think that would be very valuable.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, to some extent, what the data is telling us is that it's very difficult, in a democratic system, to actually manage this um, compared to you know an autocratic and non-democratic uh, system. Uh, I'm not I'm not uh, suggesting which one is better or worse, but yeah, uh, What the data is saying is that if you if you have a situation where somebody is making a set of decisions on a consistent fashion, then the outcomes appear to be high, better. Right.
1: Yeah. So so let me just make two points here. So in general, I agree with you, but I'll, I'll make two points. First is it's already relatively well known or accepted within the literature that compares democracies to um to say authoritarian governments, at least the economics literature, that the basic trade-off is that uh, with an authoritarian government, uh, you have more variation in outcomes. uh, Although that means that you have the potential of having much better outcomes, think China on economic growth, and also much worse economic outcomes, think about North Korea. Korea. Um, The thing that democracies get you is it gets you some form of insurance that your government is not going to do something so crazy bad that you're going to get the Cultural Revolution. Right, right. Okay? And that's really what's going on. And what that means is that you're going to find lots of situations where uh, democracies seem to be doing worse than authoritarian governments, but it still might be rational to say, look, I'd rather have a poorly performing U.S. democracy than an authoritarian government because I worry about the North Korean outcome or I worry about the Soviet Union outcome. So that's, that's point number one. Yeah. The second point, which is less well appreciated, is that we don't really when we say authoritarian, we think in very textbook terms like authoritarian governments do better. But as it turns out, authoritarian governments have their own internal politics. They're just politics that are not played out in the form of elections. Like right. the rules are a little bit different. Uh, think about it as the kind of politics that you see within a firm. Or a company, right? There's always, you know, backstabbing and maneuvering that happens within a company to see who gets promoted and not, especially at the highest levels. That happens in authoritarian governments, too. It's just a, we just kind of put it within the black box of the authoritarian government and say there's no politics going on. There are politics going on. But if there are politics going on, it just happens to be non-democratic politics. It's important to remember that authoritarian governments may also end up taking bad decisions because of those politics. Yeah. We just need to understand that.
0: Right, right, yeah. I mean, they have objective functions that are not really public. <laughs> that, that's the only difference. So ultimately, mm-hmm. comes comes to the same. So I want to shift gears Anub, and open. Um, and talk about. Uh, so you did an experiment in India. I don't know that the exact timing of this, but uh, you looked at um, investigators. You you know you investigated a, a randomized field experiment. You say in Karnataka state. To measure the effects of a free inpatient public health insurance plan (RSPY) on health and poverty, and you you had randomized trials, you had people in, I believe, four different buckets, right? And mm-hmm. you measured um, how they made decisions, and you had different incentives in those four buckets. Could you could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So yeah, so this is back in 2013. Uh, yeah. uh the important thing to remember is that India in 2008 had passed its first national public health insurance program called Rasya Swastabhima Yojana. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a program that where the Indian government would pay for people that are roughly below poverty line uh, populations. Uh, they would they would buy insurance from them from private companies. That is to say, the government would pay the premium and, the, and, the, and these individuals would get insurance. Yeah. The insurance okay. mainly covered hospitals up until 30,000 rupees of coverage per family per year. That's roughly the program. No copays, no deductibles. It was a simple form of insurance, uh, financial structure. That was the program, and it the number of people covered was very, very large. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, up to I would say uh, about a, a, a you know 250 million to 280 million people were eligible. You know, a, a, almost 150 million people, roughly. Uh, uh, I'm using rounded numbers, uh, unrolled, and it was very fast. It was remarkable how how fast it grew. It, it didn't seem like it grew fast, but for 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 program. Like this, it was you know put it in perspective is quite impressive. Yeah. But what we didn't know is how well the program functioned, uh, and it was especially important as we learned around the world that health insurance becoming more and more important. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, uh, what we decided to do is an experiment uh, where we randomized people, as you said, to four buckets, and the four buckets uh, were designed to answer the following question. Our assumption was that this was going to be just the first step that India took towards public health insurance, that it would take subsequent steps as well. We just didn't know what format those subsequent questions would take. Mm. Uh, Specifically, we didn't know whether they were going to give out free insurance, whether they were going to sell insurance, whether they were going to partially subsidize insurance, and so on. So what we said was, let's let's give people a bunch of different options. Let's randomize them to a bunch of different options and see which ones have bigger effects and what the consequences are. That is to say... Look at the ones where, you know, which ones have bigger uptake, which ones have uh, uh, greater utilization. So uptake into insurance, utilization of healthcare, And then the third one is uh, look to see uh, which ones um, have better health outcomes and which ones actually improve people's financial situation better. So those are the outcomes that we looked at. And we also did one other thing that was a little bit different than prior studies. So beyond looking at different policies, we said, look, we understand that what happens uh, to uh, so when I get insurance, part of the impact of insurance on me is going to be a function of whether or not you also have insurance and for multiple reasons. One reason is this is a new product in India. So when you get insurance, maybe I learn from you how insurance works. Mm. Uh, maybe I learned from you about the value of insurance and that might affect the way that I use insurance. A second thing is that, especially when you're talking about villages, when other people have insurance, it can have an impact on your your benefits from insurance. Uh, yeah. Let me give you two examples. One is, you know, maybe there are a limited number of facilities nearby. And if a lot of people are have insurance and are using it, that crowds me out. I don't get access to the same beds or number of, of doctors. A second issue is that um, once I exit the, Informal insurance market and enter the formal insurance market, it is going to be the case that um, uh, that's going to uh, reduce the value of informal social insurance, yeah. uh, and and that can affect you. Like for example, if you didn't get formal insurance and you got informal insurance, that would that would then collapse that insurance market. So those are the the ways there are spillover effects. And so what we did is we designed a study that varied the number of people, the fraction of people in each village that got insurance, so we could study that spillover effect. And so that was the design. And it went on for about uh, five years, uh, the study did. Uh, um, and we looked at, at impacts uh, of insurance that way. And, and
0: so what did you find? What were the, the, the top line findings? So I want to I be a little bit careful here because we have one of the papers
1: under review at a medical
0: uh, and I'm not, <laughs> okay.
1: I'm not supposed to talk about it, but I'll, I'll give okay. you a rough sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so we so I'm going to focus a little bit on uh, a little bit on uptake. Uh, I'm going to skirt some of the health issues because that's the focus of the medical journal piece. And then I'm going to focus on financial impacts. So what we found is uh, that there was meaningful uptake. There was uh, um, a, a, a remarkably high number of people that decided to even purchase insurance uh, not just take free insurance, but purchase insurance. And it was higher than the level that we saw in Rastya Swastabhima Yojana, the actual program. So the actual program had an uptake rate of 60%, and we we're observing an uptake somewhere between 60 and 80%. Mm. And part of the reason uh, uh, for the difference, I think, is just that you know we may have done a better job of informing our population about what it is that we're offering. Uh, part of it could have been that that our population was a little bit more wealthy than the typical uh, population. So we had studied people that are just above the poverty line, yeah. uh, although a lot of the people that we had are actually below the poverty line as well. Um, and we found that, that maybe, maybe that, you know, higher uptake, but maybe that was because our population was wealthier. I, I tend to think that it's the former explanation rather than the latter, because even within our population, we don't find a big difference between poor people and rich people taking up. Now, as I said, I'm going to skip over the health consequences because yeah, of the Medical Journal it. article. Cheers. Maybe in, maybe in uh, hopefully in a month or two, we'll be able to talk about it. But on the financial side, I think the thing that was interesting was um, that we, fa- so one really interesting thing, or one, one important feature of insurance that, comp- that makes it hard to hand out insurance is something called adverse selection. And in adverse selection, what happens is people that have more demand for insurance they're the ones that tend to purchase the insurance. And the, the people that don't have a lot of demand for insurance don't. That seems pretty obvious. Sure, sure. But the reason why that's important is because that means the people that are higher risk end up in insurance pools than people that are low risk. Or sicker people end up in insurance pools and less sick people don't. Healthier people don't. And that causes insurance prices to rise. Uh, and that can, in, in, unless you have some sort of rule, like a community pricing rule, where everybody gets charged the same price, that can lead to a situation and and with people having rights to buy the policy, that can lead to something that's called a death spiral. Yes. This is the this is the basis in the United States for having an insurance mandate,
0: right. an individual
1: mandate. So you have that that basic idea of adverse selection. You know, do do people that are uh, higher demand buy into insurance? Now, what's interesting in in India when we looked, we found uh, that when people paid had to pay for insurance, they were more likely to use insurance. Okay. That is, sorry. Uh, yeah, they're more likely to use insurance, uh, but they weren't sicker.
0: Okay. They, they were not sicker. They, they were not they, sicker. So the utilization increased just because they bought insurance. Yes. Okay.
1: And and so so that was very interesting because what you'd expect in an, in in an adverse selection story is not only would people with uh, that are sicker have higher demand and then buy, but also you would be able to see that they're sicker. And in our population, they weren't more sick based upon on what we could we learned. We asked a lot of questions about their health, but you didn't you didn't see a a sicker people be the ones that were more likely to buy um, uh, insurance. So so then we asked, well, what's really going on? As it turns out, we have to go beyond the literature on health insurance to understand this. There's a literature in development economics that asks the following question. Why is it that some people that are charged more utilize something more? So, for example, we've observed in certain contexts that you know if I if I provide a, a water purifying tablet that helps people make non-potable water potable, and I offer that at a higher price, people are more likely to utilize it. And the nice. question is why? And there are a m- bunch of different explanations. One explanation is the adverse selection story that that people that have higher demand, higher need, are the ones that buy it. A second one is that. The price of a good tells you how good the good is. It's a (laughs) price is a signal for quality. Like, you know, you find a higher price item of a higher price car, you think that must be a better car. A third possibility is that it's like the gym membership problem. Once I pay for it, I want to utilize it. But if I don't pay for it, I'm not going to utilize it. Uh, You know, kind of sunk cost fallacy. And so what we do is we look into that. And what we find is that we don't think that it's adverse selection for the reason I said. And we also don't think that it's that price signals quality because what we did is we asked people in villages where most of the people paid higher prices, and we didn't ask them, but we looked at what their behavior was. We went to see if they were more likely to utilize the product if their if their if their village paid a higher price in right. our study than if they than if they paid a lower price, and the answer was no. There was no difference. Mm. And so what we think. We can't prove it, but we can't. But this is the only explanation we can't rule out is that that people, when they pay a higher price, tend to want to utilize something a little bit more. The sunk cost fallacy, the gym membership story, (laughs) uh, so to speak. So that's the other part of it. But I'll just pause and say, you know, there's a lot of, at some point in the future, let's talk a little bit more about the health consequences. But there's a lot of other issues that come up in here, like an important other area is what the spillover effects are and what the mechanisms for the spillover effects are, because that's also happening in this study. There are significant yeah. spillovers.
0: Yeah. So um, on the financial side, um, I also found, I think in the paper, or I don't exactly uh, where, but correct me if I'm wrong, uh, when there is insurance, when that tail risk is removed uh, from, the, from the individual's total risk, they tend to invest more. They make resource allocation decisions that are more optimum. Yeah, you found that as well.
1: Yeah. So th- this is this is stuff that we're still validating. But but the the basic idea is something like the following: um, If I'm insured, uh, I don't face this risk of a massive health bill. Yeah. And because I don't face that risk of a massive health bill, I don't have to save as much in anticipation of that. I don't have to do what is called precautionary savings. Right. What that means is that I can then hold uh, assets that are less liquid because I don't need them in an urgent situation. When I get sick, I can hold them in illiquid investments. Okay. And illiquid investments typically have higher return. So let me make this more practical. You're sitting in a village. You suddenly have insurance. You used to hold things in uh, uh, items that could you could sell quickly in, uh, if you needed to. Yes. Uh, maybe it's livestock, maybe it's jewelry, things like that. Uh, and you didn't didn't do things like build a home that'd be harder to liquidate that you could rent out, but you'd be harder to liquidate or didn't buy, you know, in, invest in your in whatever business you're engaging in. OK,
0: yeah. So
1: now that you have insurance, you're like, well, I don't need that money right away so I can invest in those things that I can't sell. I didn't do that before because I needed it right away. But the nice thing about this is that I get a higher rate of return. And so what we found is some suggestive evidence that that's actually uh, what happened, at least initially when we when we looked at the early data. And so now we're in the process of just confirming that's the case, uh, that in fact, people are switching to uh, away from precautionary savings uh, towards uh, m- more illiquid and higher return investments, which is really nice, by the way, because it means that um, even people that don't utilize insurance will see higher income and higher consumption.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it it, it sounds very intuitive uh, to understand. It also seems like it has a policy lever, right? So if you want to, in a recession or, or something, you want to increase consumption, one way you can do that is to is to actually take the tail risk away from people who are holding capital. Uh, just for the rainy day. And Mm -hmm. that might have a a multiplied effect on the economy potentially.
1: That's right. The one thing that we have to think about though, and and I agree with everything you just said, but the one thing we have to think about is, uh, and this really gets back to a question you asked about adaptive control, which is, you know, what is the state's capacity? Uh, And what is the demand among, uh, uh, in India for these sorts of products? So one of the things I like to stress when we talk to, whether it's talking to state governments or to NGOs is we try to say, look, you know, India has a much more primitive health insurance system. It also has a uh, lower per capita income. And so we may want to try financial products that are not borrowed from the United States or high income countries, but rather that are appropriate for India's level of development and, and, and also to be able to innovate in ways that the United States can't. Yeah. And so some of the examples that we're talking about are like the following. So, so I'm going to be very concrete in the context of COVID. So in the context of COVID, we had a lockdown that affected a lot of people's incomes. As a result of reduced income, uh, there was a less ability to spend or less demand for all sorts of products, including health insurance, by the way. So for example, uh, right now, health is very salient. People want to buy health insurance, but they can't afford to because they don't have the income due to the lockdown. So right. we want to come up with other policies that could work in this context. So one simple way to do this is to say, look, I'm going to change the structure of health insurance so you don't have to pay your premium up front, uh, mm-hmm. or even like on a monthly basis. Maybe you can pay all at the end. Right. Okay. Maybe that's one policy. But here's another policy. What if instead of selling you insurance, I let you borrow money for for when for when you get sick? Right. Yeah. Because the real real issue is, you know if I most people can't borrow money. They can't borrow money because once you get sick, nobody wants to lend to you because they don't think you're going to pay back. They're going that's to charge like you camp. a high interest rate. So what if we could get people those loans? Now, the question is, well, how do I get the interest rate down? You can Mm -hmm. still get a loan now. It's just very high interest rate. So an alternative to health insurance might be something like credit insurance. And what credit insurance is, it's a policy that says, I will promise you, promise to loan you health insurance, uh, promise to loan you uh, money to pay for your health bills, not health insurance, promise to loan you money to pay for your health bills at a reasonable interest rate when you get sick. Right.
0: And if you if you get sick, if you get sick, yeah.
1: And, and the thing is, that interest rate is lower than if I just give you the loan once you get sick. Right. Uh, and, and the reason I'm going to do that is because you're going to pay me a premium now. And that premium is going to compensate the insurance company for the difference between the interest rate that they would have charged ex post had you come to them just after you got sick versus the amount that they promised to charge you now, which is lower um, ahead of time. Right. So, you know, if if the ordinary interest rate would have been like 24 percent if you came to them when you're sick and now they're promising you 12 percent, it would be the probability of getting sick plus their potential losses from having to charge 12 percent rather than 24 percent.
0: Yeah. So it has some features of sort of a long term contract too, right, between the patient and the and the pair. So this is potentially a long term relationship the patient can get into. Uh, with the payer, and what the payer uh, is is really saying is that I will assume the risk. Um, And the payer is probably in a much better position to both compute and diversify that risk, Uh, and and hence the patient gets the the advantage of that.
1: Well, I want to separate out two things. Yeah. I like the idea of long-term contracts, but the idea of long-term contracts are not necessarily related to the idea of health loans or credit insurance. Yeah. And the reason is because you could have written the contract that I told you, you could write it for one year, just like you could have done a health insurance contract. However, you can also talk about talking about extending either of those contracts for a longer period of time. And and I think that that's actually a very valuable idea. Uh, And so let me just if you if you give me a minute, let me just spell it out. Yeah. So typically we write one year insurance contracts uh, and that has a, a bunch of problems. First is the insurance company only cares about your health during the term, not in the long run. Uh, so to the extent that you're not going to come back to that insurance company, they're happy to shirk now because they, they don't have to face the costs in the future. Right. A second issue is this adverse selection issue. If I want to charge you the same price uh, as uh, let's suppose you're a healthy person and I'm a sick person and the insurance company wants to charge the same price, the healthy person has an incentive to leave the, the insurance pool so as not to cross-subsidize the, the, the less healthy person, the sick person, especially if everybody's paying the same price. Um, and that's going to lead to what we were talking about before, which is the death spiral. And the response to that is more regulation. Let's put an individual mandate, okay? Now, that's one way you could go, short-term insurance contracts with adverse selection requiring all these regulations. But an alternative way to go is to do a long-term insurance contract. Long term insurance contract it lasts for multiple years, maybe five years, maybe 10 years. You and I join the pool, okay. Uh, And um, uh, uh, the insurance company has an incentive to care about us over the entire period because if it shirks on paying for care now, preventative care now, it'll face the cost later. And the other thing that's really interesting here is that um, as long as we can enforce the contract. You know, if we start out together and we are put in a pool where we're very similar at the beginning, but, you know, you end up being healthier over the pool and over the the, the timeline of the contract, and I end up being sicker, um, it is true that we pay the same price, but we agreed on that price. It's not enforced by government regulation. It's enforced by contracts. And that has some really important imp- impacts. One is we are learning from the literature on compliance with contracts that when people get to voluntarily agree to a price, they're much more likely to comply than not. And so this is a situation where even if if you are healthier, you'll feel like, well, I signed the contract. This I I get the benefit of my bargain, or the, in this case, the cost of my bargain. You'll be more compliant, and so there's okay. less of a risk of of death spiral. Um, it's also the case uh, that you know there's a selection into this, uh, and 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 not a lot of defection out. What what do I mean by that? Um, so this is a, a again a, a slight detour. Sure. But one of the things that we're learning, and this is work done by uh, Liran Inev and Amy Finkelstein, one of the things that they noted in a an important 2010 article on adverse selection is that um, it is true uh, that there's adverse selection uh, in, in the world, but it's also true that there's some people that wouldn't demand insurance even if, they're, if, even if you could make the price specific to them, that is to say they were doing no cross-subsidization of people that are sicker than them. They yeah. just wouldn't demand insurance. That, that's not something that they want. And the problem with the standard approach that you see in the United States, which is we're going to require everybody to pay the same price, and then we're going to put an individual mandate on top of that, is that not only do you get the people that are adversely selected out to come back in, which is a good thing, but you also get the people that really just don't want insurance in the first place, even if it were priced well, you, get th- you force those people to buy it. And so there's really a trade-off with this regulatory approach, which is that you get some people that you want in and other people that you don't want in.
0: Right, um, That's a yeah. problem
1: with the mandate. Now, the nice thing about the, the writing a contract, a long-term insurance contract, that solves the adverse selection problem, but it doesn't select in the people who just don't want the insurance in the first place, even at a good price. Because the problem is that they just don't demand the insurance um and and that's one of the nice things about you know again i think you and i agree here why long-term insurance contracts would be great now query why it is that it's so hard to move to long-term insurance contracts this is something that economists i think have known for at least 20-25 years uh the the idea has been fleshed out um the nice thing about working in india as opposed to the united states is in, in the united states insurance contracts are very rigid yeah um but in india It's all in a state of flux it's a it's a little bit closer to the wild wild west we get these new contracts different duration things like that so that makes india a little bit more
0: exciting to work in from insurance scholars perspective yeah yeah i can see that um so anub i want to shift gears again i want to touch on a few of your other papers um uh, which in all of them i find extremely interesting so so one of them you look at the effects of flu vaccination on the evolution of seasonal influenza, mm-hmm. um, and you know, you 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 say that uh, vaccines against seasonal influenza are designed to protect against circulating strains that we know of, uh, but it also, in the long run, affect um, how the influenza is evolving, and and what strains we have to uh, we have to defeat in the future, and so. You know, uh, you, you talk about both a uh, kind of a beneficial effect because if you take a flu vaccine this year, it has some memory in the body that it might help you next year, year after. But on the other hand, it's also sort of accelerating the evolution, if I understand that correctly, uh, evolution of the virus. Could you talk a bit about that?
1: Exactly. So I think you've got the, the uh, key points of the trade off uh, correct. So- um, and, and by the way, this I think this is really helpful to think about uh, the current COVID situation as well. Yeah. So there, there are two types of immunity. You can either get um, natural immunity or you can get vaccine-induced immunity. I'm simplifying here, of course. Yeah. Yeah. But natural immunity is you get sick and you build some T-cell memory and that protects you in the future. Uh, or you're introduced to a vaccine, which can be active or inactive, and then that triggers an immune response, hopefully without getting you sick. Um, and then that generates T-cell memory. OK, yeah. uh, and an important question is, you know, which one has uh, a more effective protection? Now, the, the way to think about this is the following. This is the analogy I use to to tell my kids about how uh, the immune system works. And, and I got to tell you, uh, the immune system to me is a little bit like quantum mechanics and physics. <laughs> it's very complicated. We're yeah. still learning about it. It, it. If I could start my career over again, I think immunology would certainly be in my top three topics in which to to focus because there's so much to learn. Anyway, so T cell memory is like, a, 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 I like to think of it as a, as a senile old man, which, which I can talk about because one day I will be one. <laughs> and the thing about a senile old man is that, you know, the, the person can't see very well. And T, T cells are kind of like that. They can't see the antigens, the in viral invaders or bacterial invaders that are coming to the body. It has a rough description of them. Uh, and, and that imperfection would ordinarily seem like a problem, but it turns out to be a benefit. And it turns out to be a benefit because it means that, you know, if a particular year strain of influenza shows up, the the senile old T cell attacks it, uh, the one that it was trained on. But if something that looks a little bit like it, but is different, also shows up that the senile T cell goes after it, too. Okay, it's only when it looks sufficiently different that it stops going after it. So what that means is that there's a range or immune breadth uh, 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 for any infection. So when you get the infection, the body protects you for, for, for infections that are in some genetic space around that, things that look similar. Right. Okay. So that's the key thing. Uh, now, uh, uh, the, you know, one primitive issue is, is does a vaccine do a better, or worse job than um, a natural infection at, at having that kind of, that kind of cross uh, uh, protection yes. uh, across reactivity? Um, it's uncertain. We don't, I don't think we really know the answer to that question, but that's right. one thing. But the second thing that happens uh, when this occurs is that um, if we assume that there's evolution of, or we're looking at an infection where there's evolution in response to uh, 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 pressures such as vaccination, then the the vaccination itself is going to have an, uh, an effect on evolution. So what, what does that mean? That means that if you increase the immune breadth associated with natural inf- uh, natural infection or with vaccination, um, you will select for strains that are outside the range of that immune breadth.
0: Right. Okay. So, so one thing I was a bit confused about, Anoop, there. So, if evolution is by mutation and mutation is a random event, uh, then those things outside that. Uh, immune threat would happen with an equal probability, right? Regardless, if you if you have uh, if you're immune to it or not, or am I not understanding it?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so I think it it, it is partially correct. So, so here's a, a I think a helpful way to think about this. Yeah. So, uh, you know, just imagine a number line, okay? Yeah. And let's suppose that you have um, uh, a virus that exists at, at the point zero on the on the on the number line. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, now there's some probability that you're going to have a mutation that goes to the right, some probability that's going to go to the left by some distance. So the distance away from zero tells you how big of a jump the mutation takes. Okay. Yes. In yes. some genetic space. Um, and you can imagine a distribution over that, you know, a physicist would think of it like a phase diagram or something like that. But, but for us, it's just probably distribution over different sizes of mutations or distance of mutation you can make. Okay. Now, uh, if once you have something that lands at zero, right, let's suppose that's where the initial virus is, mm-hmm. you imagine that that's going to trigger some immune response. And let's suppose the immune response goes from zero, it like it is actually a, a remember this, the, the, the T cells are, are kind of senile, right? Yes. So they're going to go after anything that's between one and negative one, right? Okay, even though you're zero. So now you're saying, okay, there's going to be some mutation, what sort of mutations am I going to see? Okay. now, if you were unrestricted, you would see that full distribution. But now that you're restricted, here's what's going to happen. You will only observe mutations that are outside the range. Negative one to one means they're greater than one or they're kind of less than negative one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the question is, um, what's going to happen? What are you going to observe? There are two countervailing uh, tendencies here. One tendency is, look, there's going to be a a, uh, uh, you're going to draw a mutation that's uh, uh, between negative one and one. And that mutation is going to be killed by the immune system. And so you're not going to see spread of the infection. Okay. Right. Another thing is you're going to draw a a mutation and you're going to only ones that you're going to see are going to be ones that are greater than one and and less than negative one. So They'll be far away from the original one, in which case you're going to get really big evolutionary evolutionary jumps, right? Right. Because you're selecting for them. And those are going the opposite direction. One of them is arguing that you're not going to see a lot of change because it's going to be killed by the immune system the senile immune system. And the other one is it's going to be you're selecting for things that are very far outside. You're going to get big evolutionary jumps. Okay, and it's and it's just we don't know ex ante, which is going to be a bigger effect. And the question is, uh, sorry to interrupt, but the the question is, how do we decide, you know, what methodology can we use to determine what's actually going to happen? And that's the core of the paper is coming up with that methodology.
0: Okay. Okay. yeah. So so since we are uh, essentially negating Uh, those mutations between minus one and one in the population, um, you are essentially reinforcing things outside that range, right? So that's a selection effect that you're talking about. So over time, you're going to get a a higher range or or more more potent potentially um, uh, mutations that you need to counterattack at a later time.
1: Okay, so now we're getting at the core of the paper. Yeah. So those are two effects, right? Now, let me tell you two ways to think about what the, what the, the full effect could be, okay? One approach is to say, look, uh, you are basically kind of taking expectations over mutations. And just to make this simple, let's just think about the positive section of this, okay? I yeah. think, I think uh, listeners are going to find it easier. So let's suppose it's just you're going to the right of zero, okay? You're going to only look at the positive portion of the distribution. What is the expected value of the mutation, that is to say, how big is the is the jump, given that you're censoring below one, yeah, and what I'm saying censoring below one I want to be more precise. it's not that you're only counting the things that are above one, but anything that's between zero and one you're you're replacing with a zero, right you're killing it right yeah, so now, if you take the expected value of something where everything between zero and one is moved back to zero, you're going to do better than if you don't do that, that is to say, if I say what is the expected size of the mutation given no immunity, which is the full right part of the distribution, yeah. or I say the expected value given there's immunity, in which case anything between zero and one is reset to zero, clearly the second is going to be lower than the first. Right. That's why you might have a positive effect. Okay, And that's, in fact, what we find in our simulations. Now, there's an alternative way that this could work. Imagine that every time you have a mutation that is set to zero, that one of the mutations that's greater than one mm-hmm. actually takes its place. You just draw again. Okay? Yeah. Um, and, and and in that context, then you're gonna have the opposite result because everything that gets uh kind of taken out by the immune system is replaced by a draw, and you keep on doing that until you get something bigger than one. Right. He's gonna accelerate infection. And and the way I like to think about this, this is a, a little bit of an aside, but I, I like to use this analogy. Yeah. Because it turns out it's very similar to logic. That I learned in grad school about how, um, how crime works. So I'd taken a class with Gary Becker. He taught me about his famous model uh, of the economics of crime. And one of the interesting extensions that that's not in the paper, but he talked about it, is that, you know, when you do an anti-crime uh, a, a kind of anti-crime effort, like let's suppose that you, 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 the police go out and they arrest half the criminals Okay, and so protect half the homes from criminals. The question is whether the remaining criminals go and uh, rob the houses that were protected or whether those are permanently protected. yeah. that is to say, are the remaining uh, uh, criminals are going to be able to to get more opportunities or not? And that same analogy applies here. If you think that the big mutations just infect the people who are protected by immunity, you're going to get just faster evolution. And if you think instead the people that are protected are just really protected. And that's right. it. You're going to get less. Our simulation says it's the latter.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that has a big, uh, big um, implications for how the it's almost like there's an optimum policy for a population then, right? Mm-hmm. How, how you would vaccinate.
1: Exactly. And what's interesting about this is, um, again, we have to uh, emphasize it's a simulation of a world where it's one region. A more realistic simulation would do a lot more. So this is more of a kind of a paper that points out the potential. Um, But the idea would be something like the following. If you took it seriously, I'm not saying you should take it seriously. uh, uh, It requires more validation. But it would suggest that a low level of immunity of, of vaccination could, uh, and, and by the way, on average, that's much higher than what we have now, but a low level of uh, vaccination around the world could eliminate the existing influenza, the H3N2 uh, that's circulating, existing, existing kind of lineage, yes. uh, which started, I think, in 68 in Hong Kong. Um, so that would be really beneficial, but you would have to to, to do that vaccination, and, and, and that's very promising. Um but in lieu of doing that, um, it, you, that is to say, in, in, in lieu of being able to do this, one question you might ask is, is are there ways that we could um, reduce the spread? Uh, well, let me, let me just step back 10 seconds. Yep. Right now, the world does the following. In the United States, we have a high rate of vaccination, maybe in Europe as well, although I think less than the United States. And in the rest of the world, we have almost a 0% vaccination, mm, yeah. okay? So the question you might ask is, would it be better if the United States, instead of just vaccinating itself at a high rate, instead paid, use some of its funds to vaccinate the rest of the world at a low rate? Right. And it raises that potential as a better strategy for eliminating H3N2. And, and you know, again, more work is required, but at least it, it raises that possibility, which could be, you know, a really great way to avoid a large number of deaths that we see each year from seasonal flu.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting idea. So 60% U.S., 300 million population worldwide is, uh, is less than 1%, let's say. Mm-hmm. So just bumping that up a few percentage points on worldwide population of 8 billion, raw numbers will, will really jump. I would imagine, right? In the who, who, people who are vaccinated, so just that raw number. The, the, the issue with influenza and any of these viral issues is that it's not localized, and so there are no policies a country, I would imagine, can implement that is going to be uh, effective. You know, it just takes a couple of flights from uh, from another country that's not vaccinated to basically spread it, and so. So, so that this diversity in the rate of vaccination, what you're suggesting is, is is not necessarily that effective.
1: That's right. And interestingly, one of the th- this is why I talked
0: about one region versus
1: multiple regions. One of the yeah. things that we've learned from flu, and I, I'm not, I'm, you know, think of me as an economist that decided to be try to look at some of these models of flu and work with epidemiologists. I mean, uh, this is where yeah. this is stuff that I've learned from folks like Sarah Kobe, uh, um, is that. The way dynamics work for flu is that a lot of the evolution of flu, a lot of the movement in, in, in uh, uh, kind of antigenic drift that we see in flu occurs in uh, East Asia and South Asia, mainly East Asia. They just ex- it goes at a faster rate there and it goes yeah. at a slower rate in the United States and in Europe. Uh, and in fact, you know, it goes from, say, United States and Europe to places like Africa and North America and, and South America. So it's really it's driven by Asia. And so what happens is each year you have a new strain that's seeded, that goes from Asia to the United States and to Europe. And then during the course of the season, it it evolves in those places. But then again, when the new season starts, the next year starts, it gets replaced again. Okay. Now the reason why that's really important, and this is actually really what you were saying before, which is that you're getting a reseeding each year. So even if the United States vaccinates at a really high rate and drives its local strain extinct, what ends up happening is you just get a flight from from East Asia, and we're there again. We got a right. new strain that replaces it. So in that sense, we really need to go think about the source. And the source might be uh, uh, East Asia, South Asia, etc. Now, it's important to remember that, you know, you really want to think about this worldwide, because if you happen to suppress the evolution in East Asia with more vaccination, then it might just end up evolving somewhere else. So it's really, you have to think about it in a in a global scale, but at least that's a start. It gets us thinking about East Asian vaccination as important. And what I really think is interesting, uh, you know, as a counterpoint uh, to COVID is in COVID, everybody's been comparing the death rate for influenza and the death rate for COVID. But it's also important to remember that influenza kills a lot of people every year. Mm -hmm. And the estimates might be as high as 500,000. It's very hard to validate that. But you, if you could stop H3N2, and I don't know if it's going to be replaced by something else, but if you could stop H3N2, that's a lot of lives saved worldwide uh, yeah. and might be worth the effort. And, and especially when we say, look, we're willing to lock down economies and suffer a meaningful reduction in GDP uh, to stop this one disease, you might want to ask yourself, well, well OK, d- is it going to make sense to, to try at least invest a portion of that amount to stop another disease, a proportional amount to stop the other disease, which happens to be H3N2?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh Anub, I wanted to uh explore number of different other um papers that you have. If you're open to it, um, you know, uh, to the extent that you have time, um, if if we could do a second one and we can focus on those papers, that would be that would be ideal because we we sort of <laughs> ran out of time on this one, if that's okay with you. Sure, I'd be happy to. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Anoop, And uh, thanks for spending time with me and uh, good luck with uh, all all these things that you're doing. Great. Thank you, Gil. Thank you for having me. Sure. Thank you. Bye. Bye.